If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations like rainbows and ropes or fruity and gummy or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts. Dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Leonardo, a new drama about the life of Leonardo da Vinci, has been released on Amazon Prime in the UK and Ireland this week. Starring Aidan Turner, it's an eight-part series reimagining Leonardo's life, work, influences and relationships. Ahead of the show's release, we spoke to Catherine Fletcher, a historian of Renaissance and early modern Europe and professor of history at Manchester Metropolitan University to find out more about the artist's real relationships and what can be found in the historical record. Putting the questions to Catherine was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on the History Extra podcast today. Hello, good to see you. And and we're going to be talking today about Leonardo da Vinci. And the jumping off point for our conversation today is that there is a new drama about Leonardo starring Agent Turner of Poldark fame. Uh, and it's on Amazon Prime in the UK and Ireland at the moment. Uh, and Catherine, you joined us last year to talk about your book, uh, The Beauty and the Terror. Uh, and in that conversation, you talked a lot about viewing the Renaissance and its great art in its social context. And I wonder to start off, could we do the same for Leonardo to give listeners a bit of a a refresher of when he was working and the backdrop that he was working against? 
Yes, absolutely. So Leonardo was born in um, 1452. Um, he's known as Leonardo da Vinci because of his connection with the village of Vinci, which is outside Florence in Tuscany, up in the hillside. It's um, very pretty. His um, father was a notary, a lawyer, um, Sir Piero da Vinci, and his mother was a local peasant girl. They were not married. Um, this is, seems to be a fairly classic case of Sir Piero um, going back to visit his family for a um, yeah, for a, for a short-term visit, um, getting it on with one of the local girls, she gets pregnant, and um, the grandparents actually take on bringing up the um, bringing up the baby and bringing up the uncle, and and the uncle helps as well. So um, Leonardo evidently takes an interest in art, and as many um, young men with an interest in art do, he goes into a workshop in Florence. In this case, the workshop of Andrea del Verrocchio, who's a very established Florentine artist, and gets his training there. So this takes us into um, the world of Florence um, in around the kind of 1460s, 1470s, when um, Florence um, is one of the major states on the Italian peninsula. So at this point in time, Italy wasn't all one country. It was divided into five quite big states and a number of smaller ones. So the big ones are Naples, the Papal States run by the Pope from Rome, um, Florence, Venice and Milan, and then there are lots of other little duchies and marquisates and so on scattered about, all with their own courts, um, all with their own kind of artistic ambitions. And there's a lot of competition between the rulers of these small states for um, artists um, to produce material for them, um, and indeed also for scientists and engineers. Um, if we think about the other side of Leonardo's career, part of the reason he's in demand um, is because he's able to... Um, work on the military side of things, work on the architectural side of things too. Um, so he is in this very wealthy part of Europe where there's a lot of money to pay for, pay for art, which is a, a good position to be in for, a, for an up-and-coming Renaissance artist. And how does he come to get on the radar of, of some of these families, of these ruling courts? Well, in Florence, obviously, he's already um, working for somebody who is noticed and who is prominent. Um, but there's also I mean, a good deal of diplomatic exchange between these different courts. So when he goes off to Milan, he, um, he almost goes as on, on, a, on a sort of diplomatic mission um, from the Florentine government, and then he gets headhunted by the Duke of Milan and convinced to stay. So there's a certain amount of um, competing with better offers, with better stipends for people to be your court artists. I mean, there is one point when, um, you know, Leonardo gets noticed by the, the Marchioness of Mantua, Isabella d'Este, who's a big art collector. And she's like, I really want a portrait. She's writing to her agent saying, can you get me a portrait? And, and she doesn't get a portrait. She ends up with just a drawing. But, you know, there are a lot of people competing um, to hire Leonardo. But he also puts himself forward. So he writes letters. There's a very um, interesting letter that he writes to the Duke of Milan offering his services. And nine out of ten of these services are about the type of... Um, military advice and techniques that he can provide and only at the end he said oh and in peacetime by the way I can also do art and architecture and he, he um, designs a bridge um, you know he designs a bridge across the um, um, for for Istanbul and sends the um, sort of sends a letter over to the sultan saying would you be interested in this so there's a lot of really interesting pitching for work as well as waiting around for possible connect um, for possible um, commissions. 
the original freelancer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so is it right that it's for the Duke of Milan that he um, creates the Last Supper as well? Well, that's for a particular um, church in Milan. So it's not a direct, um, but it's it's while he's in Milan working for the Duke. So it, it's um, connected with that period of his work. So even when you are working for one um, court and based at one court, you might be taking on jobs for different clients in the same city. Right. Yeah. So clearly plenty going on in Leonardo's mm. life and lots of, um, I, is it fair to say instability, I suppose, with the these different courts um but one thing one aspect of uh, the program that we were going to talk about today um is the way that the drama chooses to portray also his personal life alongside his artistic and engineering um work so what is known about uh, leonardo's uh, private relationships well this is a really really challenging subject because the actual detailed evidence we have for Leonardo um, in terms of his lovers from his own lifetime is very, very scanty indeed. So we really have one document, and this is from 1476, and it is an anonymous denunciation of Leonardo and four other men to the Florentine authorities um, on a a charge of sodomy. So this um, anonymous individual, writes um, a message, puts it in the anonymous denunciations box, um, (laughs) pretty much, um, and says that Leonardo, who at the time was just short of his 24th birthday, along with um, a chap called Bartolomeo, who's a goldsmith, a chap called Bacino, who's a tailor, and um, a guy called Leonardo Tornabuoni, who's from quite a wealthy, um, well-known family in Florence, have been engaging with in sodomy with a 17-year-old man called Jacopo Saltarelli, who appears to be a sex worker. He is, has a previous um, offence on record. And uh, Saltarelli is described as being a party to many wretched affairs and consents to please these persons who exact certain evil pleasures from him. So Leonardo there is accused of having sex with men, which is against the law. Um, now, this anonymous denunciation is not actually accepted by the authorities. Now, it used to be the case that people said this wasn't accepted because the Tornabuoni family had political influence and so they got them off. But actually now, I think most historians think that the reason is simply because as an anonymous denunciation, it um, didn't fit the requirements. Although you were allowed to um, make these denunciations secretly without your name becoming public you did have to sign them and because this one wasn't signed there was a bit of an investigation it was ruled out of order and the group were told you're absolved of these allegations provided you don't get reported again so it's a little bit like being let off with a police caution so we know this is going to stay on record but we don't we're not going to you know rule either way whether or not you were guilty of it we're just going to say look um you know, don't we don't want to hear from you again. We don't mm-hmm. want so that's what we know. And of course, so this immediately, I guess, in terms of what we know about Leonardo, lean given that this is the only very solid piece of evidence, leans us in the direction that he's more interested in men than he is in women. Um now what we do need to be a little bit careful about though is that in this period we do not what well, two things really. One, there are not very solid 
distinctions of identity between people who are gay and straight. Those are much, much more modern, um, really don't come in until the 20th century. And so and so that's part of the story, that, that we shouldn't assume that because somebody is having sex with men, they would have an identity as gay or bisexual. That's something that people do rather than something that people think they are. Um, and secondly, most men in Florence were having sex with other men at some point in their lives. And this is one of the extraordinary um, pieces of history about 15th century Florence, is that we know from the remarkable work in Michael Rocker's book, Forbidden Friendships, which came out um, now 25 years ago, that when you look at the police lists of this Office of the Night, which is a magistracy set up specifically to try and deal with issues of vice, really, like a little bit like a Florentine vice squad, runs over the 70 years from 1432 to 1502. If you look at the records for the later part of the 15th century, more than half the men in Florence appear at some point in the lists. Now, doesn't mean that they were all necessarily did exactly the thing they were accused of doing. No. Um, doesn't mean that there was a general culture in Florence in which, despite it being illegal, lots of people were having same-sex affairs, um, same-sex one-night stands, same-sex relationships. Um, Yes. So this is very much an accepted part of um, Florentine male culture. Um, The the penalties are quite small. Um, People don't go to jail until they're on a kind of fourth offence or so, as you see in the case of Leonardo. Um, You... You get, you know, there are there are charges that aren't pursued. So it's a, so if he was um, indeed um, sleeping with Jacopo Saltarelli or any other young man, this would be very much within the sort of accepted paradigm of what a twenty-four-year-old um, unmarried man in Florence might well be doing. Okay, interesting. So even um, notwithstanding that, there's obviously not a legal fallout there for Leonardo. Do we know? If there was any other impact I mean, in the piece you've written for History Extra, you mentioned there's a certain amount of religious hostility that goes with those kind of accusations. Yeah, I mean, there is some suggestion that later on, um, when so in fourteen in the fourteen nineties, so by the time now we're in kind of a point where Leonardo is into his forties, um, um, one of the reasons that he's actually not that enthusiastic about staying in Florence or working in Florence is that um, between 1494 and 1498, um, when, which is a period after the Italian wars have begun, so from 1494 onwards, that's kind of really the second half of Leonardo's career, is dominated by this big series of wars. Um, in the context of those wars, um, which kind of European-level war that happened to be um, going on in Italy, the Florentine government, um, sort of pro-Medici family government, um, gets kicked out and goes into exile. And in its place comes um, a government which is very politically dominated by um, a Dominican friar called Girolamo Savonarola, who's quite a hellfire preacher. One of the things that he really does is, is sort of say, you know, we really need to address the problem of sodomy in Florence. I mean, there are all sorts of, you know, crackdown on sexual misconduct, all these things very bad for the city. Um and so in that context, religious hostility might be a factor in why Leonardo um, was not enthused about the prospect of 
being in Florence at that point. But again, we're sort of into the realms of speculation. We don't know that. Leonardo didn't um, write lots of details about what he thought about sex. People have had to sort of speculate on it. And I mean, starting from Freud, I mean, Freud onwards, uh, Freud writes this whole thing about a childhood dream that Leonardo has and and invents all these speculations around it, partly based on mistranslation, which is kind of unfortunate. But um, so lots of people are speculating but really with very little, very concrete evidence about what might have been going on. Right. There's also uh, another um, relationship of significance that you, you've written about for for History Extra, and uh, this is with the um, artist known as Salai. What can you say, what's known about and what what's there for speculation with Leonardo's relationship with Salai? So... Um... Salai, whose um, proper name is Gian Giacomo Caprotti, although he's never really called that in the sources, um, he is um, later um, in a in a kind of rather fictional account of Leonardo, um, written in the later 16th century, so after everybody's death, but still within living memory. He is described as being a lover of Leonardo. Um, so this is a, in a dialogue by um, Gianpaolo Lamazzo, um, who lived from 1536 to 1584. He identifies this as being a sexual relationship. And so he writes this fictional um, conversation between um, a, a character called Phidias and um, Leonardo. And they talk about, and Leonardo says that he's had sex with Salai many times. Um, and he says, have in mind that he was a most beautiful young man, especially at about 15. And so when you started like Salai being about 15, um, might be something that would raise alarm bells with um, modern listeners. And in fact, this is, um, is we, we know that Salai joined Leonardo's household at the age of 10, um, which would even more uh, raise alarm bells with modern listeners. And actually, that is quite a typical pattern. Um, of same-sex relationships um, in Florence in this period. Um, so quite this is kind of what you might call a pederastic model, which follows the model um, that's common in the ancient world um, of an older man. I mean, in this case, you know, when Salai is 15, Leonardo is 43. So quite it's a very, very big age gap. Um, but quite often you find in these records that we have from Florence that when prosecutions are taking place, the a the younger man will on average be around 15 or 16. And with a kind of age spread of sort of 12 to 13 and through to 18 or 20. And this is a model that they think at the time is, a, is it almost a kind of, you know, educational type of relationship for the younger um for the young person concerned. Um, again, it's it's um it's something that, that now of course is, is enormously taboo, but actually persisted in European culture for a very, very long time. I mean, it's obviously it's an ancient model, but I mean, right through until the, the 20th century, you find these cases of people um, you know, being quite tolerated by their circles of friends, um, even while have, having relationships. Um, if we could call it that with um with teenage boys so 
clearly, when we come come back to the idea of a TV series, this is, of course, tremendously difficult material for a TV series to deal with in um, a way that was historically accurate. And partly because we just don't know what's going on. And I don't want to be the person to label Leonardo as possibly abusing his 10-year-old, how you you know, (coughs) servant boy. Um, And perhaps partly for that reason, people have been quite reluctant to be concrete about whether or not it's a sexual relationship and at what point it might have been a sexual relationship. Um, What we do know is that um, it's a very long relationship. And having joined this household in 1490, um, Celia stays around almost until Leonardo's death, so a good 25 years or so. So this is not only a relationship when he's a teenager. Um, it is something that lasts well into his own adulthood. So again, all you know, this this is obviously where we're entirely in the grounds of hearsay, extrapolation from circumstances, and trying to understand a model of sexuality that is quite alien um, to society today. Um, when we get to it, um, but it's one of those those kind of quite tricky things to deal with, just because um, on the one hand, you know, it can be quite tempting to want to look back into the past and claim prominent figures as gay or bisexual and kind of sort of say, well, the, the, these people are, are you know part of our history. And on the other hand, sometimes when you do that, as in this case, you hit up against some quite difficult facts and realities of. Um, the contemporary perceptions of what constitutes an acceptable sort of relationship. It was actually quite, it was oddly, it's more taboo back in the 15th and 16th century for two adult men to be having an equal relationship with one another than it is for an adult man to be having a relationship with a teenage boy, which is completely like the opposite to what we think is okay now. But it is more transgressive for, um, yeah, two adult men to be having sex um, in an, on, on a kind of equal basis. So, yeah, they, they, they have such, such different attitudes to what it, uh, as to um, what, what is okay. Right. So, yes, definitely understandable that the, the drama has chosen to perhaps make, make Leonardo and Salai more equal in age for the purpose of the drama. Um, uh, and I'm interested in in your opinion of, of of the dramas take in general. They do obviously portray him ha- as a as a gay man, and I, I think. Do you think this will this will be surprising for modern audiences, or do you think that this aspect of his private life and his relationships is is well known? So, as I say, people have been talking about it going back at least to um, Freud. I mean, so it's not that it it's, hasn't been out there. Um, it's been treated kind of differently in, in some of the modern biographies. So Walter Isaacson's biography is very much kind of portrays Leonardo as very definitely gay. Some people have said in a somewhat anachronistic way. Um, on the other hand, I think Charles Nichols leans towards more a bit towards talking about um the possibility that Leonardo has sex with women. Um, and so there's a little bit of, of tension there. It does get, but you know, it certainly does come up. Um, in the recent exhibitions that I've seen, the sodomy trial tends to be mentioned, but often because we don't have more solid evidence, after that, you 
tend to end up saying, we just don't know. We don't know the nature of these later relationships. We don't know whether, you know, having been put on trial once and, you know, investigated once, Leonardo then sort of thought, better be extremely discreet because I don't want to get into trouble. Whether he just decided he actually wasn't all that interested in sex. There are a couple of quotations that suggest um, he's not that keen. Um, But again, you don't know whether these are, you you know, you, you can take these out of you know what context those fit in are they a kind of one-off thought or are they a life philosophy we can't tell so you know you you again end up sort of extrapolating huge amounts from tiny tiny fragments of evidence um but i think that if you haven't read a recent biography or if you haven't um seen a recent exhibition where that's been flagged you may be quite surprised because actually this sort of the, the this whole history of Renaissance sexuality is something that, yeah, the specialists know about it. It's in the academic books, but you know, whether it's really got out there into the broader um image of Leonardo um, among people at large, I'm not quite sure. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The interesting thing about Mona Lisa is that um Francesca Del Giacondo um, never gets his painting. Although she, um, you, you know, the, the painting exists, Leonardo doesn't hand it over. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. So in the drama, the show also chooses to depict uh, a, a woman, Caterina de Cremona, as a significant figure in 
in Leonardo's life. Um, what's, where does she come from in this story? And, and more broadly, what's kind of known about his relationships with any women, potentially? Well, she is a bit of a fictional composite, so I don't think anybody has claimed that she's a real person. But, um, I mean, there are obviously a number of women with whom Leonardo um, works and engages. So there are women who are patrons, there are women at court. Um, there are some women whose names appear in his um, financial records. And, of course, there are the models, um, because Leonardo draws women. Um, so you put it so. One of the kind of questions that does come up is, is there any woman amongst um, all these individuals who may have been um, a potential lover? Because everybody likes it, everybody wants to have an affair and maybe, you know, this this is a kind of neat, this is a neat way of speculating. So there have been a few pieces of speculation, um, although there's even less evidence for Leonardo having sex with a woman than there is for him having sex with a man. And as we've seen, there's not very much evidence in a really, really solid way for that. Um, so at the end of the day, though, I suppose what I would say about it is that this, again, brings us back to the question of fluidity of sexuality. And, I mean, these days, um, if somebody identifies as gay and then they suddenly start going out with a member of the opposite sex, their friends are probably going to be a little bit like, whoa, what's going on here? This is all a bit of a shock. Um, and, you know, and vice versa, right? A sudden kind of um, coming out in one direction or the other is typically a surprise. Whereas I think in um, the Renaissance with those ideas not being so solid and there not being an assumption about the sort of quite the, um, the innate nature of somebody as being gay or bisexual or straight, um, they would probably be a little bit less surprised by it. And also perhaps even a little bit more likely to do it because it's not so challenging to um, your internal identity. Right. That Yes, that, that makes sense. Um, I wonder, uh, jumping off that, um, can we talk a bit about the, the women that Leonardo uh, painted, or just in terms of the women who feature in his paintings, uh, perhaps Mona Lisa, just as she's the most obvious candidate. Yeah, I mean, Mona Lisa is a really interesting one because originally, I mean, Le Mona Lisa, Lisa del Giocondo, um, maiden name is Lisa Garadini. She is the wife of this quite sharp-elbowed um, Florentine businessman, Francesca del Giocondo, who. Um, evidently like a lot of kind of businessmen in the period, is quite upwardly mobile and sees having a portrait of his wife by one of the local um, star artists as being an attractive thing to, um, to do. And presumably at some point commissions Leonardo. And the interesting thing about Mona Lisa is that um, Francesca del Giocondo um, never gets his painting. Although she, um, you, you know, the, the painting exists. Leonardo doesn't hand it over. He takes it off to um, Paris with him when he moves to work for the King of France. And there is, um, um, you know, an, an argument, a Martin Kemp's argument, that by the end of its existence, this isn't really a portrait of a real woman anymore. It's actually quite idealised. So there's a sort of question about what's going on there with that portrait, whether that's a real Lisa or whether it's not. Um, Leonardo does a drawing of... Um, Isabella d'Este, the Marchioness of Mantua, as I say, she wants a portrait, she didn't get one. Um, there are a, a number of drawings um, for Leda and the Swan, um, very kind of 
classical famous classical subject um the the you know there are portraits of the virgin child with saint anne there are lots of um virgin marys um so there are there are lots and lots of portraits um, and paintings of different types of women by leonardo um but again these are you know you know how can we connect these with real life women well, even in the case of the Mona Lisa, where there's some connection with a real life woman, the end product seems to have shifted somewhat from that. And as I say, um, you know, there, there, there are some very lovely portraits, but it's difficult to kind of, I suppose, to, to connect that um, into what's going on in his actual private life. Right. Uh, we've talked uh, a fair bit now about his um his his private life and where where there are gaps and um kind of opportunities for speculation and the drama obviously as as period drama does is you know plays on these areas of speculation and and um creates a narrative out of that um but i imagine many uh, of our listeners will be kind of fired up to find out a bit more about him uh, where can people go to find out more about the real leonardo and his work Oh well, gosh, there are all sorts of books out there. Um, there's there's a very nice recent one that I reviewed, um, which is very very detailed deconstructing the myths around the Mona Lisa. Um, that's by Martin Kemp and Giuseppe Palanti. That's called the Mona Lisa: The People and the Painting. So if you and and um, they have done this remarkable job of trying to get behind all the speculation that has been created about that particular painting and its patrons and about Leonardo's early life. And they do some really valuable work in identifying what's likely to be his real birthplace. Um, Spoiler, it's not the place where the birthplace museum is um, it's which is quite which is slightly demolished the whole premise for that museum which is awkward um, and that that book is also the one that first um brought to light the evidence about um, Mona Lisa's husband being involved in slave trading so lots of fascinating and quite quite a dense read sometimes but lots of fascinating detail of the facts there um there are lots of there's a there's a a really good fun book by Paul Strathen called The Artist, the Warrior and the Philosopher, which looks at the events that happened when um Leonardo and Machiavelli and um Cesare Borgia were all in the same place at the same time. Um so that's very interesting if you want something that looks um at the warfare in more detail and Leonardo's work on that side of things. Um so there's I mean, there's lots and lots of material out there. If you want to know more about sexuality and particularly same-sex relationships then obviously forbidden friendships is one place to start there's also a great new recent book called um same-sex marriage in renaissance rome by gary ferguson which looks at um the case of a group of um male friends who were in various combinations of sexual relationships and um, in this kind of little subculture in later 16th century rome um so yeah and um, all of those things um are out there I, I have some references to them in my book if you want a kind of quick introduction, but then there are plenty of places to go to dig in more detail. Fantastic. I mean, well, you've already mentioned that there are so many sources where people can go to find out more. And the drama, if people want to um, go go and watch it and see how that depicts uh, Leonardo's life, that's available on Amazon Prime in the UK and Ireland at the moment. Um, and Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Thanks for having me.
That was Catherine Fletcher. Her latest book, The Beauty and the Terror, an alternative history of the Italian Renaissance, is published by Bodley Head and is out now. There's a link in the show notes. If you want to read more from Catherine on Leonardo's relationships, you can read her article on this at historyextra.com slash Leonardo hyphen relationships. And for a bonus podcast recorded with Frank Spotnitz and Steve Thompson, the writers of the new drama series on Leonardo da Vinci, then visit historyextra.com slash Leonardo hyphen TV hyphen podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for the extraordinary story of a World War II secret agent. <laughs>